Oh, but I don't suppose you ever heard of the Phantom? Some questions only the Phantom can answer. That's right, but only because they feared the wrath of the Phantom. Old Jungle say, Phantom is many men. Slam Evil. That's the title of this week's episode, and it's also the tagline for the 1996 Paramount Pictures blockbuster, The Phantom. For a huge chunk of those of you in a certain age group, this film was the first time you are exposed to the character of the Phantom, who, by the time of the film's release, had been around for six decades. For lifelong fans of The Ghost Who Walks, this was the moment. The chance to get to see their guy up on the big screen, in lights, and getting the kind of treatment it felt like all these other superheroes had gotten first. As you'll remember from our early episodes, this wasn't the first time The Phantom had been in cinemas. There was the 1943 Columbia Pictures serial, but repeated attempts to get The Phantom on the screen, big or small, had failed over the years. Batman's flailing print run gets saved with a TV series in the 1960s, but The Phantom's TV attempt never makes it past the pilot. Director Richard Donner makes the world believe a man can fly with the huge hit that Superman was in 1978, followed by the sequels with depreciating returns in the 80s, while the goth kid in your art class done good, Tim Burton had a colossal hit with the Phantom's imitator, Batman, in 1989. I have given a name to my pain. What are you? I'm Batman. It's hard to overstate what a huge cultural moment Burton's Batman was. Was it good? No. Faithful to the comics? Also no. But it made $250 million plus on a $35 million budget. It had people shaving Batman logos into the sides of their heads. And the character never really went away after that. Its success is credited with reigniting the superhero movie in Hollywood. Because after that, everybody is scrambling to make theirs. You've got Spawn, you've got X-Men, you've got Blade, you've got Spider-Man, you've got Fantastic Four, you've got Daredevil, Elektra, Catwoman, all rolling out, trying to get a little slice of what Batman had. Lee Falk's first character, Mandrake the Magician, was in the mix, and we've heard how Federico Fellini was still trying to get that movie made right up until his death. In fact, Mandrake actually gets cast with Jonathan Rhys-Meyers attached, who then drops out to Hayden Christensen. And, you know, this is the Star Wars prequel era, obvi. Jarman Honsu was cast as Lothar, and even as recently as 2016, Sasha Baron Cohen was said to be donning the top hat as Mandrake. Nice. In a nutshell, the production is troubled and maybe borderline cursed, so attention shifts to Lee Falk's other creation, his more popular creation, The Phantom. The father of the spaghetti western, Sergio Leone, tries and fails to get a Phantom movie off the ground. He actually wanted to make that and Mandrake back-to-back, which I would pay any amount of money to see. Jeffrey Bohm pens the early drafts of the Phantom screenplay in the 1990s and in a cute little serendipitous wink to Australia's feverish love of the Phantom, 
Village Roadshow Studios on the Gold Coast gets booked as the primary shooting location and it's all a go. Or so it would seem. For one reason or a thousand, it all falls apart and the Phantom is put on ice for around a year, year and a half until an Aussie director known as the Horse Guy gets a call from Paramount. My name is Simon Winter and I'm the director of the Phantom. Simon Winter is, and I'm going to use the L word again, a legend of the Australian screen industry. As a television director, he has worked on basically every important original Australian show at the dawn of the medium down under. He was responsible for several productions that had tricky live elements to them, usually but not always limited to horses, like Farlap, The Light Horseman, Lightning Jack, Quigley Down Under, and the seven-time Emmy Award-winning miniseries adaptation of Lonesome Dove. Simon has been riding horses since he was four had grown up around them. He was adept at working with all kinds of animals, like on arguably his biggest hit, Free Willy. He had also grown up reading and loving The Phantom. So I had a phantom ring, you know, with eyes that glowed and all that sort of stuff, so with the iridescent eyes. And, uh, yeah, we all had them at school. And, uh, yeah, I remember very clearly. And the comic was very popular. The other big selling point was Winsor had just finished working on the TV series The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg heavily involved. Now, Indiana Jones is often cited as the heir apparent to those early adventure stories of which The Phantom was a key tenant of the genre. So there's a lot of similarities in terms of tone and stakes, but also Jeffrey Bohm wrote 1989's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So on paper, you can see how Paramount were like, aha, this is the perfect team. What happened was Paramount were set to make a movie with Val Kilmer called The Saint. For some reason, there was a delay and they had already booked a slot, you know, to release The Saint. They suddenly needed a film to fill the hole. So I got a call out of the blue. I was just finishing a movie for Disney called Operation Dumbo Drop, and it was John Goldwyn who was head of uh, film production at Paramount Pictures, and he said, uh, look, I've been talking to Sherry Lansing, and she was the head of Paramount Pictures, and uh, (laughs) we need a picture, and we'd love to uh, talk to you about making The Phantom. And uh, I was literally on my way to London to record the score for Dumbo Drop, and and we actually... uh, I went via limo, via Paramount Pictures to the airport and met with them for about an hour and they gave me the script and I read it on the plane going to London and then rang and said, oh, yes, I'd be interested in doing this because, you know, I remember the character so much from my boyhood and that's sort of how it all began, really. They speak to Simon Winsor in August of 1995 and they need a summer blockbuster by July of 1996. So that's a 10-month turnaround at best. And they also need to cut millions from the budget, which he's able to do by suggesting that they move the bulk of the jungle exteriors from Hawaii to Thailand, where he'd just shot Operation Dumbo Drop, and the majority of the rest of it back at Village Roadshow Studios on the Gold Coast. It's now a $40 million movie instead of a $50 million movie. And at that time, it was about to become the biggest Hollywood blockbuster ever shot down under. 
Nowadays, everything from Aquaman and Thor Ragnarok to the third Chronicles of Narnia movie and the last two King Kong epics have shot there. But to really break down what it was like on the lot at that time, well, you gotta go there. Morning. Hi, how are you? Hey, how are you? Nice to see you, you again. Too. I know it's been a long time. It's been a while. Nice and bright. Oh, my God. I know. I the know. woman I'm here to see is Lynn Benzi, president of Village Roadshow Studios and someone I was low-key terrified of as a baby film reporter because she suffers no fools. You have to, to spin as many plates as she does for as long as she has. Besides being the big boss currently, Lynn is also perfect to talk to because she knows where all the metaphorical bodies are buried. The archives, the old offices, Billy Zane's dressing room, what sound stages were used for what because she was here in the 90s and worked on The Phantom itself. Just a good experience because having something on that scale and I think it then started to put the studios on the map. We'd had other projects before. But because The Phantom is so well-loved, it's well-recognised around the world, Queensland started to come on board, you know, with the Film Commission and the city of Gold Coast. That back then didn't exist with the film division, so now it does. As well as Thailand and some exterior shots in Los Angeles and New York, the bulk of The Phantom was filmed in Queensland. Brisbane Town Hall was converted for some key interiors and there's a famous stunt where Diana Palmer jumps from a plane onto a horse that's running below that was filmed in North Queensland and Movie World itself was even used with vintage cars brought into the park as Kit Walker hops from roof to roof in a chase scene. The majority, though, was shot in Village Roadshow sound stages, particularly soundstage number five, which was turned into the set piece for the big finale. Billy Zane as the Phantom faces off with the film's antagonist, Xander Drax, just a seriously bad dude with an affinity for laser murder skulls. They did the skull cave with the submarine. Yep, the Singh Brotherhood's lair. That's right, that was done in stage five. Yeah. So as we're standing in the, ta- in the stage now, we have the tank in the floor. Yep. So the scene that they had, which they had the submersible, the submarine, Mm -hmm. that before they went off. They'd extended the the water channel around the stage itself, built the cave sequence, so the big, uh, the deep thing when it exploded and everything was actually done in the tank of where we're standing now inside, so it was pretty cool. So I was digging into the archives last night and read that they, this was the largest interior set ever built in Australia at the time. We had some smaller features, but at that time, Phantom was one of the biggest ones we had at the time. So, yes, and when you look at the size of Stage 5, which is 23,000 square feet, and if people go on our website, they'll see photos of the stage and what it looks like with the tank in the floor. And uh, and because they get the extra depth in here, because the tank is eight foot deep, it gives them more height. Um, And that's how they're able to do the cave in here and what they did. So it worked really, really well. And because it is what we call a wet stage, enabled them to then extend the water where the shark swims around in the channel. They actually did that around the edge of the stage as well. Quick summary of the film's plot. Bandits on a quest to steal a mythical skull artefact in the Bengala jungle are intercepted by the Phantom who, after apprehending all but one of them, has to return to his old stomping ground of New York to investigate what they were really up to. There, as Kit Walker, 
he crosses paths with his former flame, Diana Palmer, and together they uncover that the mobster known as Xander Drax is trying to obtain all three of the skulls of Tuganda, which would give him, according to the legend, ultimate power. It's a race against time as our heroes try to stop him while coming up against everything from pirate Captain Sala and her all-female crew to the Singh Brotherhood in their shark-infested volcanic lair. And given the film was coming out at a time when The Phantom wasn't at the peak of its popularity, it opens with a tidy, summarised spiel to get all the newcomers up to date on The Legend of the Phantom. It all began a very long time ago, when a merchant ship was set upon by pirates of the Seng Brotherhood. A small boy watched helplessly as his father was killed by the pirate leader, the evil Kabai Seng. And when he grew to be a man, he became the Phantom. It's a classic action-adventure movie and has all the beats of the best in the genre, like Indiana Jones and The Mummy. That kind of vibe. Because there are so many superheroes now, and even in the 90s when the genre was going through its first big boom, one of the trickiest aspects is visually trying to set them apart and visually show the audience why your character is special, why their world is special. And one of the key ways to do that is through production design. Here's a goddamn expert on the subject, Kazra Farahani, production designer and art director on some of the most visually specific superhero movies of the past few years, including Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Birds of Prey, and Black Panther. I think it's a the hallmark of good production design is that it's um, design in service of narrative and not design in service of itself or just image making or spectacle making. It should be in service of the story, which many times calls for spectacle making. But I think there are a lot of films out there, big films, where it's just a bunch of visual noise. I think the better ones are the ones that are interested in visual impact, but focus it in service of story. At a time when gritty Gotham had a chokehold on the visual storytelling of superhero stories, part of the Phantom's big point of difference was its period setting. It kicks off in 1938 and has this gorgeous Art Deco aesthetic that is brought to life by the production and art design of Paul Peters and Lizette Thomas, respectively, with costumes by Marlene Stewart. Actually, let's stay with costumes for a moment because obviously in a superhero movie, something that is vitally important to hardcore fans and new viewers is the superhero suit. And what makes a good one can really depend on the time period and the intent of the storytellers. Here's Christine Wada, designer of not just one, but several superhero suits from the recent Marvel hit series, Loki. I think it's probably evolving. And uh, I think we're amidst maybe some change with that. Um, But for me, it's about having purpose. You know, it's something that's really been ruminating with me is just that I know from how I like to approach design is like, I think that the more that every choice feels driven by purpose or intention or something that that character really would do or needs to do, it just, it allows the audience to identify with that character more. 
But I also mm. find that that's just great design in general. Like whether that's your dinnerware, you know, your couch or, you know, I think that there's always like you want a little bit of backstory to it, a little purpose. We've heard how the colours of the phantom suit vary depending on the publication location, but for the 1996 film, they went with the classic bright purple look that wasn't stiff and bulky like a Batman costume, but closer to that of a Spider-Man, where it moved with the actions of the person wearing it. There was the classic skull belt, of course. They ditched the striped jocks, wisely, I think. The black eye mask, the skull ring, and even the jewel pistols were there. There was also a touch that I've always been a big fan of, and that was a larger skull motif worked into the main body of the suit, which you maybe don't notice on the first watch, but you definitely do on the 85th watch, like some of us. <clears throat> and the person wearing said phantom suit? The one, the only, Billy Zane. Don't do this, Derek. Listen to your friend Billy Zane. He's a cool dude. Now, the Zane train nabbed the part from two other contenders who made it to the final three the Evil Dead's Bruce Campbell, and the late New Zealand actor Kevin Smith. Zane first came across the Phantom comic strip when he was out in Australia filming Dead Calm in the late 80s and immediately became obsessed. Getting to play the character was a dream of his, and while directors came and went on the project, Zane was one of the few constants. He was so serious about the part that he underwent an intensive 18-month training regime learning different kinds of martial arts that would give him cat-like movements, like in the comic, and going by a super strict diet. Remember, that suit is dope, but it is unforgiving. And as director Simon Windsor says, Zane was conscious of embracing the emotional and physical beats just as evenly. You drive everybody mad uh, before every take with the, you know, last minute little waste buffing up, buffing up, and oh, Christ, Billy, come on, are you ready? <laughs> We used to drive Patrick McGoon crazy. <laughs> but no, he's very dedicated to keeping himself fit and uh, working out. And, uh, you know, when you, to get your body in that shape, you have to work at it pretty much 24-7. You know, you can't relax for a minute. And same with diet and all that sort of stuff. Stay off the booze and all that sort of stuff. He was, he was very good, good in that department. A huge fan of Billy Zane's casting as Kit Walker slash The Phantom was his creator, Lee Falk, who visited the set in Australia. Here's his daughter, Valerie. I was so glad that it was done while my dad was alive, you know, and he loved it and he loved Billy Zane and, you know, all of that. Billy Zane is great as The Phantom. He just is. His best performance might be dead calm, but his best role is that of Kit Walker slash The Phantom. He has heart, he has humour, he has heroics. He's able to punch a baddie in the face with a twinkle in his eye. And the casting was one of the film's big strengths. Not just because of our leading man, but hot off the heels of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and higher learning was Christy Swanson as Diana Palmer. Not so fast, why should I go with you? Trust me, Diana. You know my name? Sure. Here, Diana Palmer. As Simon mentioned, there was legendary character actor Patrick McGowan as the ghost of the previous Phantom. Legendary character actress Samantha Eager as Diana Palmer's mum. James Remar as one of the key baddies. 
John Tenney as Jimmy Wells, which, for those of you playing at home, was the name of the billionaire bad boy who Falk considered making the Phantom in the original comic run before he settled on Kit Walker. And Treat Williams as the deliciously camp and maniacal villain of the piece, Xander Drax. X-A-N-D-E-R-D-R-A-X. Xander Drax. Begins and ends with the letter X. But one of the key standouts was a then little known Catherine Zeta-Jones playing the female pirate Captain Sala like a classic femme fatale. The Phantom helped Diana to escape. I think he's in love with her. Oh, really? This is getting more interesting by the minute. Why do you say that? Because he could have had me. But he picked her. I can only be love. Although she might have been unknown to the rest of the world, this was only her second feature film, mind you, and still years before The Mask of Zorro, Chicago, Traffic, etc., she had a big fan in Simon Winsor. I had never worked with Christy before, but I'd worked with Catherine on an episode of Indiana Jones, and uh, she was terrific in that. And I remember George Lucas said to me at the time, gosh, you know, this is, she's the, like the perfect Indiana Jones woman. When you saw the first dailies of Catherine's work in that, she played a kind of double agent and does a, a big thing as a belly dancer and all that. And uh, she was just terrific. And also in that same episode was a young actor called Daniel Craig. So I had these two totally unknowns who are now huge stars. Anyway, I thought Catherine would be perfect for uh, Sala. And then met Christy and she was, look-wise, she was, to me, what Dinah Palmer was. She's gorgeous looking, you know, very fresh and uh, had a great smile. And uh, I thought the two of them together were just, Terrific, but uh, they both, you know, relished all the action parts of their bits as, as well. You know, relishing the fight in the pirates' cave and all that sort of thing. Both did it all themselves. You know, somersaults and slashing swords and all that sort of stuff. It was great. The dynamic between Diana and Sala, especially by the time we get to the end of the film, and these two adversaries are now teammates, was one of the big highlights for me personally. Getting to see not one but two female characters with agency and drive and gumption working together. Not too many films from the 90s passed the Bechdel test, but The Phantom was one of them. For those who are familiar with the Bechdel test, it's a super simple, do the women in this film talk about more than men and have their own shit going on rubric. Before we move on, I do just want to touch on one more thing to do with the character of Sala, as I think there's a great cinematic what-if here, as the role came down to two people, Catherine Zeta-Jones and another then-unknown actress, Jennifer Lopez. I'll never forget Jennifer's audition because she just came in and we were just chatting before she read one of the scenes for Sala and the phone rang and Deborah Quiller, the casting lady, said, oh, it's... John Goldwyn, you know, he was, I mentioned earlier, the head of film production at Paramount. And, uh, you know, when they ring, everything stops because he have obviously, he's the boss of the studio. And uh, I could literally, he started screaming at me down the phone. And, uh, you know, I knew John quite well. Uh, I'd met him on a personal level. And uh, he's yelling at me, how can we, we can't, you, I've got to cancel the film. It's got too big. It's 50 million. And it's got to be. Less than 40 and da-da-da, screaming at me down the phone. Meanwhile, you know, literally everyone else in the room, including Jennifer's, sort of realising that I'm getting my ear chewed off. <laughs> so that, that happened right before Jennifer started to do her reading, you know, and, and 
she came in nicely dressed and all that and started to peel off all the gear and ended up, you know, in a, in a very sort of raunchy outfit and was terrific. But um, I think when uh, everybody saw the screen tests, you know, uh, Sherry Lansing and John Goldwyn and Robert Evans and Alan Ladd and all that, everyone plugged to Catherine because they thought, I remember Sherry saying, this lady is going to be a star, how right she was. Not that Jennifer wasn't, but she gave a great reading. But anyway, Catherine, you know, won by her nose, I think. So... With the cast assembled, the crew working away hard on their Art Deco superhero blockbuster and Simon Winsor leading the production on the Gold Coast, all is going swimmingly except for, well, a missing horse? Not just any horse, mind you. Hero, the Phantom's White Stallion. I'll let Lynn Benzie explain. And because at the time I used to do the immigration for all the cast coming into Australia for every film that was based here, and they were working out at the original time with the horse because they didn't want it to go to Thailand and then come back here because, they, you know, they said we need to do it here and then go to Thailand. I remember somebody actually ringing me saying, have you got any idea where the horse is? I said, well, last time I heard, I think it's in Sydney somewhere. Have you got any idea? I said, I, don't, I thought you guys would be keeping track of it. I said, but I don't know. So we ended up ringing around and I don't know. Somebody had obviously been looking after it. I just love that there's a lost horse at the centre of all this. I know, I wish. It's like such a good anecdote, you know, you couldn't write that. And that is one thing I clearly remember when they rang me and said, have you got any idea where the horse is? I know I do immigration for the actors, but I'm not, I don't really look after the horse. Try to keep track of Billy Zane, I can't keep track of a horse yeah, as well. So look, Simon makes that crazy 10-month turnaround and the film gets ready for this big summer movie season release, which in the US is considered like May, June, July as those key months. But at screenings for The Phantom in Los Angeles, Simon and the key creative team started to realise there was a bit of a problem and the odds of becoming a success seemed less and less likely. The trouble was The Phantom has, he has no tricks. He doesn't kill people. He can't produce, you know, magic and, uh, you know, disappear before your eyes or anything like that. He has to use his mouth. I suppose in a way, you know, he's an old-fashioned, well, he's a character from the 30s, you know, and innocent in that way, and I think. And so he can't compete on the same level as Superman or Batman, Spider-Man. And uh, so in a way, I think we're a bit behind the eight ball in terms of that and what people would expect. The Sunday before the film was due to be released in the States, we had a special screening at the Directors Guild for, you know, all the studio executives and uh, different people and the press and stuff like that. And the, the reaction, particularly from the younger audience, was just terrific. And I can remember Sherry Lansing standing outside the in the foyer of the theatre, gathering all her executives around and saying, you know, this film is terrific. It's got to do well. Why don't people know about it? You know, and she was literally getting stuck into all her people about how, They've got to do a better job and, and they'd almost run out of time to do it, you know, to get people aware of the film. And uh, so in, in a way, she was certainly, you know, because they have so much awareness these days of they can anticipate almost the first weekend's growth and stuff like that. It's extraordinary. And just by their research and uh, she was really thinking, boy, oh, boy, what a great disappointment this may be because uh, it's such a terrific film and particularly how the younger audience reacted to it. You know, they were all going round after the screen. They had their little rings and uh, going round, you know, slam evil and all this sort of stuff. It was just terrific. 
Now, we've talked about The Phantom being a period superhero film, right? And in 1996, two other period superhero films had just flopped back to back. The Rocketeer in 1991, which is now considered a bit of a cult gem, and The Shadow in 1994, which is, well, not. The Phantom completed that trilogy because it too flopped at the box office and by the end of its theatrical run, barely made half its budget back. What's interesting, though, is it had some pretty significant supporters. Roger Ebert, who, you know, at that stage, probably America's leading film critic for the Chicago Tribune, he wrote, the opening of his review is remarkable. He said it was one of the, his opening line, I, I, I can't quite quote it verbatim, I'm sure you can find it. Um, I have it right um, here with me. <laughs> yeah, something like the, the best, one of the best-looking movies he's ever seen. Yes, that's exactly the line. Yep, one of the best-looking films he's ever seen, which is a pretty... I mean, he gave it a really solid review. I think it was like three out of four or three and a half out of four. Something like that, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so bless his heart. And uh, funnily enough, he had another partner who was a critic at the other Chicago newspaper called Gene Siskel. Mm. And they had a a weekly television program called Siskel and Ebert, and it was movie reviews. And they used to have one with their secret indulgences, if you like, you know, films that they hate to admit that they really liked, you know. And one of my films, Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man, <laughs> turned out to be a favourite of theirs, which is great, you know. They're guilty pleasures, you know. I'm going to fact-check myself here because Roger E. Bear gave The Phantom three and a half stars out of four, and the opening paragraph goes, quote, The purple-clad ghost who walks stars in a rousing jungle adventure in one of the best-looking movies in a long time. The stunts and special effects are non-stop. The movie is wonderfully entertaining, red-blooded and rousing, and with a production design that makes it uncommonly handsome. End quote. Roger really frothed this film. He said it was smashingly entertaining on the story level, and now, 25 years later, The Phantom does kind of have this cult following. I mean, I don't want to say I was ahead of the curve, but I was ahead of the curve because I always thought this movie was good. Then and now. In fact, when I was at the world premiere of Captain America, the first Avenger in the US, the thing that immediately struck me while sitting in that theatre audience watching what remains my favourite MCU film to date was how much it reminded me of The Phantom. It felt like Joe Johnston who directed The Rocketeer, so relevant, had sat down, taken notes about everything that worked and translated it into the Marvel system, which through the sheer force of will and Kevin Feige's rotating roster of caps, made it succeed. There's a through line there between Diana Palmer and Peggy Carter. The artistic direction, the unwavering earnestness of both the Captain character and the Phantom, but also the properties as a whole. As someone who has been working in the film industry for over 60 years now, Winter still finds things to be proud of in his film. One thing when I looked at the film that impressed me most was I couldn't believe the production value. I mean, usually when you see scenes shot on a backlight, you go, oh, yeah, that's a backlight. But I thought all the New York stuff and all that, all shot on the universal backlight. Fantastic, the amount of traffic we had and that sort of stuff was just terrific, you know, like... Old-fashioned epic movie, and uh, I was I was very proud of that. And the cast are all terrific. I mean, Treat Williams, wonderful, you know, and um, 
Catherine and uh, Christy and, and Billy and Patrick McGur, and again, an absolute joy to work with and really lovely little cameo, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, it's become a bit of a cult hit now, which certainly makes me proud that it was all, all worthwhile because I think at the time everyone was a bit cynical about the film and now people have gone, oh, wow. People who had not even seen it were sort of knocking it. But, uh, yeah, I think it's sort of found its place now. Even now, when billions of dollars' worth of monster movies, quite literally, have shot at Village Roadshow Studios, an original theatrical one-sheet of The Phantom is still one of the first things you see, framed and shiny, as you walk through the doors of their production offices. The Phantom, in the age of streaming and rediscovery, never really dies. Coming up next week on our sixth and final episode of the show, we look at where the ghost is walking as the legacy of the character begins to evolve with its audience. The Phantom will always reinvent itself. The Phantom, no matter what we've done with him or what you do do with him, is always the Phantom, basically. He can be a detective story, he can be an action story there. He's always the character because Falk did such a good job of setting up that character, basically. He was an ordinary man because my dad thought that was more interesting. The Phantom Never Dies is written, hosted and produced by me, Maria Lewis, executive produced by Elise Cooper and edited by Adrian Walton. For more great shows like this, head to novapodcasts.com.au.